And now, more Educate on TalkZone.com. Here's Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back, welcome back. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on TalkZone. At this time, let's welcome Dr. Philip S. Cicero, an educator with more than 35 years experience as a teacher and administrator. He is currently an adjunct professor at Adelphi University, founder and director of School Leaders for Change, and author of The Seven Deadly Sins of the K-12 Education System, Costly and Ineffective Programs and Strategies. Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Okay. Philip, first, I'm very intrigued by your title. I think it's an excellent book title, and it immediately caught my attention when I saw it. Um, what actually are, if you could just list for us, what are the seven deadly sins of the K-12 education system? Sure. The, the seven deadly sins um, that I've identified are, number one, class size reduction, number two, homework, number three, seniority and advanced degrees, of teachers. And number four is technology. Number five is remediation. Six is grade retention. And seven is extending school time, whether it's extending the school day or the school calendar. And each one of the seven that I've listed are related to whether or not they have any impact on improving student achievement. And the answer is no for each one <laughs> of the seven. There is no uh, established link showing that by implementing any one of those seven, you're going to get student achievement, which is contrary to popular belief, and that's mm-hmm. why I've identified them as the seven deadly sins. Okay. And and which of these seven sins are generating the most interest? Interesting question, because I do think that it's probably going to be almost a um, seasonal uh, kind of a thing. Right now, homework is getting a lot of attention. And I think one of the reasons homework is getting a lot of attention is because some of the other issues uh, have uh, budgetary ties, for example, class size reduction, technology, et cetera. And they may become more popular issues as we get into the spring when school districts are doing their annual school budgets. So right now, uh, this time of the year, it's homework. And I also believe, uh, Jonathan, that the reason it is homework It's because, as you know, um, 45 states have adopted the Common Core state standards, including the uh, District of Columbia, Washington, D.C. And uh, with the new standards, there's been a direction of giving more homework to meet uh, to help students meet these uh, new rigorous standards. And students have been saddled with uh, more homework than usual this year uh, than in prior years. So homework is as we speak. I mean, to answer your question, out of the seven, homework is getting the most attention. Okay. And and what would be the next in line? The next in line is class size reduction. And the reason I say class size reduction is because there's this inherent or visceral feeling that simply by having less children in the classroom, you're going to see a marked improvement in student achievement. And I have to tell you, when you think about it, um, it does seem to make sense. Uh, having less students gives the teacher more time to work with uh, with more students uh, during the day, but but um, actually uh, studies have shown that just simply reducing the number and treating that as the most significant variable in the teacher learning process has little to do with student achievement. And I guess that would uh, uh, throw a wrench in a lot of private schools who tout 
the fact that their class sizes are smaller. Yeah, that's a great point, too, because uh, many of the private schools, I mean, the students that are in those classes, it's a skewed population, if you will. It's not a random sampling of of, uh, students that we have going to schools. Many times there are other factors that make those students successful in those private schools, socioeconomic status being one of them. But it is interesting that you say that because many times class size reduction in public schools, the rationale is driven by the achievement results of what's happening in private schools. Yet the two populations, meaning the private school population and the public school population, are completely opposite of each other. It's like comparing apples and oranges. So Mm -hmm. there is no relationship between what happens in a private school and their low class size versus a public school and its low class size. Okay. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book. Uh, it's probably several years old at this time. It's called Let's Put Kids First Finally by Dr. Charles Achilles. And he actually agrees with your premise that, you know, class size reduction doesn't work or, or is not effective. However, he does state that there is some evidence that it's effective in the primary years. Would you uh, agree with that or you think across the board it's not uh, the holy grail? You know, I do. I remember the title of the book. I can't recall the author. There may be some, and and I will certainly be the first one to admit to this, there may be some evidence that on the early grades, particularly with minority children in the areas of reading and math, there may be some, um, some improvement uh, in student achievement. However, the unfortunate part of that side is that whatever gains are made are not maintained through the elementary years and certainly into middle school and high school. So I am familiar with that. Again, I'm not familiar with the author, but I am familiar with the premise. Okay. And, okay, so we've mentioned that homework. We've mentioned a class size reduction. If you had to choose a third of the seven, that's the, the, that really gets people's eyebrows up. Which would that would be? I would say we're probably um, seniority and advanced degrees, meaning um, there's, again, a general feeling that, uh, you know, if you've been on the job longer than the person next to you, that you're going to be more effective in the classroom. And the research shows that may be true for maybe the first two or three years. But after a a teacher gets into the fourth and fifth year of teaching, the disparity or the gap between that teacher's effectiveness and a teacher who's been teaching 15 and 20 years has narrowed considerably. In other words, there is a gap in the early years of of when one starts to begin teaching, but that gap closes very quickly as that teacher, novice teacher, if you will, enters years, say, three, four, and five. Beyond that, there's very little difference, meaning there's no exponential um, uh, maintenance here between the veteran teacher and the uh, five-year teacher. The gap closes significantly. So years of service has very little impact on student achievement, as does advanced degrees, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, meaning I may have a master's plus 30, you may just have your bachelor's, and you could be as effective as I am in the classroom um, and having less degrees and less course credits beyond your graduate degree. So, you know, these are all the things that, that, um, that, that, that are myths that I'm debunking in the book and supporting by research. Um, so effectiveness has nothing to do with um, years on the job or the number of degrees or course, or course credits taken um, after I've become a teacher. Yeah, and I find this I find this very intriguing. Uh, you spent nearly a dozen years as a, a district school district superintendent, so you have negotiated many many contracts. I'm assuming. Um, have you bought some of these uh, uh, 
issues into your contract negotiations? I mean, again, a, a great perspective, simply because, um, as you know, for the most part, and it does vary, um, but for the most part in, in our country, um, teacher salaries are driven solely by those two variables, meaning seniority and degrees. I mean, that's, that's known as the salary schedule. So I may have a teacher who teaches, um, well, again, well, we can use the two of us as examples. We both teach math. We both teach ninth grade math, okay? Um, you've been teaching 15 years. You have a master's. I've been teaching 15 years. I have a master's. We are getting paid the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. Let's just use $75,000 as the example. We're getting paid the same amount of money. Why? Because our years of service and our degrees are identical. However, our effectiveness may be so different, meaning I'm getting paid $75,000, you are getting paid $75,000, but by all accounts, you're a much more effective teacher than I am. And we can use student data as one of the variables to measure effectiveness. And that's unfortunate. You're coming in very, very early. You're giving up your time to work with students. You're staying very, very late. You're giving up your time to working with students. I barely get to school on time. I'm the first one out the door. <laughs> yeah, we're getting paid the same amount of money simply because we, we've been there the same amount of years and we have the same degrees. There is no mention in that, in that equation of our effectiveness with our students. And that, I believe, is wrong, and that's what really needs to change. And those are the kinds of things, to answer your question now, those are the kinds of things you do bring to the table during uh, contract negotiations. But unions will fight this because unions see all of their teachers as being the same. And, okay. and that's part of the problem. Um, uh, we're not all the same. We have to admit that some of us do a better job than others, and we should be compensated accordingly. Absolutely. So you would be a... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would you be a proponent of merit pay? I would be a proponent of career ladders, and, and maybe that's just a play on words. Um, but I would be definitely a proponent of differentiating pay based on classroom effectiveness. Yes, I am a proponent of that. Um, okay. Whether or not you call that merit pay um, or, or not, you know, I think under the generic title of differentiated compensation, if you will, you know, I, I certainly do support that. And, you know, there are some ways now of that happening because we have gotten into a system of teacher evaluation, which we've never had before in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks to some federal interventions, such as race to the top under the Obama administration, and people view that either positively or negatively, but I do see some good coming out of that. Mm-hmm. The states now that wanted to claim some of the money that was available through those grants had to come up and design an evaluation system for teachers, which included teachers in the process of its development. So it wasn't a top-down or, or, or solely a management activity. It was really something agreed to between labor, um, uh, labor and management. And with a teacher evaluation system in place, you can begin to differentiate the effectiveness of the teachers because part of that evaluation is related to how well your students do on these state-mandated tests. It's a small portion, anywhere from 20 to 40 percent. So it still allows the district and the teachers to negotiate that other 60 percent on how effectiveness will be measured. Based on those ratings, you end up getting a highly effective teacher, an effective teacher, a developing developing teacher, or an ineffective teacher. It's 
usually referred to as HEIDI, H-E-D-I, mm-hmm. highly effective, effective, developing, and ineffective. And so you do have now at the end of the year a system developing that would link the effectiveness of the teacher to the quality of the instruction, and that should help that should help develop a plan to drive compensation. Okay. And, Philip, I want to go a little uh, deeper into uh, what we call in New York APPR. However, at this time, it's time to take a short break. Uh, but stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. listening to educate on talkzone.com back to jonathan jefferson welcome back to the show welcome back and welcome to our discussion with our guest dr philip s cicero uh philip we had left uh talking about appr but i did want to mention because this is a uh actually an international audience and when you when they hear salaries like seventy five thousand dollars they need to know that that's actually not unusual in places like long island new york <laughs> but it but it is actually a high salary in many places in this country yeah it's, it's a high salary in many places in new york as well Yes, yes, that that is true when we get into our, our more northern and western regions. Uh, I wanted to continue a little more on the conversation about uh, annual professional performance review and how that may help balance the uh, the playing field, so to speak, with regards to uh, addressing uh, what you indicate clearly is uh, ineffective, which is seniority and advanced degrees. Um, do you think that the APPR um, and, and, and teachers being aware of that or concerned about that may have a negative trickle-down effect on the students? Uh, you know, if you're referring to maybe teachers become so concerned that they begin teaching to the tests because that they know that, um, you know, in part the tests will be part of their overall evaluation, I would say yes. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that is a concern. I, I, I think what we have here is we really have a, a cultural shift in how teachers are evaluated and I think that's one of the reasons why it's upsetting so many people, particularly uh, some of the teachers and, and administrators and parents alike. But I do think that if the emphasis is on teaching and learning um, as opposed to getting good test scores for students, I think you can actually do a better job in the classroom than by just focusing on test preparation, drill and practice and the like. So I think that uh, this is where administrators have to step it up a little bit too. And I think that they have to be, um, you know, very diligent in making sure that their message to their teachers is not a very uh, finite message, such as just improve test scores. I think the message coming from effective uh, building principals as building leaders is we're going to emphasize effective teaching and learning. And that's what really should be um, the, the message sent by school administrators, not based on test scores. Okay. Now, now, Philip, you have uh, many, many, many years experience as both uh, a leader and and uh, a teacher. Um, so, uh, tell us what you do now to us ass- to assist school districts. Well, you know, right now you mentioned, uh, you know, my um, adjunct. I'm an adjunct professor in um, at Adelphi University, which is a college on Long Island. So, mm-hmm. I'm working in the teacher preparation program. And again, you know, this is a good point as as well, Jonathan. I think. So much attention has been given to our current teachers in terms of, of their needing to change the way they do their things specific to instruction. I think it's also a great opportunity to make sure that our next generation of teachers are better prepared 
have a bigger toolbox of instructional strategies that they can use in the classroom to teach all students effectively. So I'm really working on the uh, teacher preparation side right now. Although I can tell you this, you really can't just solely work on the teacher preparation side without working on the K-12 side uh, independently of each other. Meaning we have at Adelphi and, and, and many colleges and universities, not only in New York, Long Island, but across the nation, are being encouraged to establish partnerships with their K-12 neighbors, if you will, to help better prepare teachers, number one, and also help and work with the teachers that are currently uh, teaching in those school districts. So that's what I'm really doing now. You know, it's interesting, too. When, when I have these conversations with uh, students on the college level who are studying to be teachers, their generation, and it's really the millennial generation, if you will, they do see things a little bit differently than maybe current teachers see it. Okay. They really do, and as there was a poll taken on this, a survey that was taken, they really do believe that there should be differentiation in compensation for teachers, meaning they recognize that some do the job better than others. And mm -hmm. that is a little bit different from your current generation of teachers, maybe the baby boomers that are teaching who see it a little bit differently. And I think leadership uh, on the national level, and I'm talking about um, you know, the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, and the National Education Association, you know, together they represent over 3 million teachers in this country. I think they understand that in order for their unions to, to remain in terms of having a voice, uh, being able to lobby, they're going to need to accommodate the values and beliefs of the new generation of teachers that are coming in because they don't believe in everything that uh, the current group of teachers believes in. So to avoid any kind of conflict within their ranks, they really need to um, uh, adjust and accommodate the values and beliefs of the future teachers. And I think they're actually doing that. I think Randy Weingarten, who is the president of the AFT, has done a, ver a, a, a very admirable job in um, showing her flexibility in changing some of the things that the union supports. And one of the things that the AFT supports is the Common Core standards. So even though there's been a lot of public outcry about Common Core, particularly from teachers, mm -hmm. the AFT leadership has actually supported and endorsed Common Core standards in the schools. Yeah. Now, now, do you believe this is simply fear? Because I, I read the Common Core and I said, you know, it's, it's outstanding that we have uh, higher standards and that it's actually broken down by grade level uh, and, you know, for all of our students to strive for the same thing so that now we know that a child in Alabama, you know, is getting the same education as a child in Massachusetts, whereas before standards were all over the map. Yeah, that's so true, Jonathan. I mean, you know, there was, you know, after No Child Left Behind back in 2002, and states were kind of on their own in adopting their own, own standards. Many states adopted standards that were really, you would describe maybe as minimal standards. Mm -hmm. And others were, were being much more um, aggressive in, in establishing standards. And at the end of the year, the state that established the minimal standards looked like it was doing better than the states that established the, the, the more rigorous standards. <laughs> this I mean, core has leveled the playing field to everybody. And... It is done so with rigorous standards. Mm -hmm. And you're right. You know, children today, for the most part, are very mobile. Um, so families move, you know, a number of different times, not only within states, but they, they go to different states as well, you know, to, to mm -hmm. follow the, the careers of their parents. And by having the Common Core state standards be standardized among and between states, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. And the second mm -hmm. part of that is that they are rigorous. And, uh, and because of that, 
teachers, students, and parents are struggling with them. Um, but I do think it's only because it's new. I don't think it's going to remain that way forever. You know, one of the good things about Common Core is that there are actually less topics to cover within the various content areas. The difference is you go into greater depth, and that's where yes. the rigor becomes built in, and that's yes. something new. You know, in this country, most of the time, our content or our curriculum has been based on teaching a number of, of um, issues and topics, you know, across the uh, school calendar. Now we've reduced that dramatically, and rather than just teach superficially, we've been asked to go more in depth. That requires more thinking. That requires more analytic thinking. Um, that requires um, you to be able to integrate prior knowledge with new knowledge. These are all new processes, if you will, on how we're being asked to teach and learn. And, and it's a disequilibrium. I mean, we all like to be in our comfort zone of the past, where, where we knew where we were going, we, we knew where we were headed, we knew how to get there. Now we're being asked to really do something entirely different, and it can be upsetting for everybody. And by the way, that's why students are getting so much homework. You know, <laughs> each struggling with covering the material in class, and then they're asking the students to do it at home, and they're asking parents to do homework that parents are not familiar with how that homework needs to be done because it's so different from the way previous homework was completed. Yeah. And, and lastly, would you agree that it will take several years before we actually see the, the global benefit of it as far as our competitiveness on a world stage? When we see kids go from K through 12 under common core rigor, is, is that at the point where we start seeing, seeing the United States re, regain its, its status as one of the best uh, educational systems in the world? Yeah, I mean, you know, usually anytime you're, inter uh, you're uh, implementing a new program of any kind, it's going to take th three to five years. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we're going to have a few more bumps ahead. You know, as you know, there are many people calling for an end to Common Core. Uh, uh, yeah, I, and I think that's from not understanding and fear. <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, yeah. that's, that's very, very unfortunate. Um, however, I do believe that for the most part, you know, uh, many, many, you know, unlike New York, in most states, education is run by the governors. Mm -hmm. um, New York is one of the few states where we actually have a board of regents. The governor has no say in educational policy in, in New mm -hmm. York. It's all about the board of regents. But in your other states, particularly in the states that have adopted Common Core, you know, the, the, uh, you know I, from what I've been reading, the governors have been holding steadfast on making sure that Common Core gets implemented. Where there has been some discussion is on the assessment end. Um, how children are being assessed within Common Core. But you will find um, tremendous agreement that the curriculum, the Common Core curriculum, is a good one. It will, it will stay around. It will be maintained. And, and there may be some modifications in how kids are assessed. Uh, okay. But for the most part, um, you know, I think it's just good. You know, it, 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 mm -hmm. anything that's new is going to be upsetting. And okay. uh, this is no different from anything else. You know, sometimes I draw the, the analogy to Obamacare, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, it's you know, going to take time. <laughs> president administration or not. When you're doing yeah. something on a large scale that's new, you are, gonna have, you are going to have bumps in the road. I'm sorry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, our guest has been Dr. Philip S. Cicero, adjunct professor, education consultant, and author of The Seven Deadly Sins of the K-12 Education System, Costly and Ineffective Programs and Strategies. It is now available online and in bookstores. Check out his website, schoolleadersforchange.com. Philip, thanks so much for being on our show today. Jonathan, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it, and um, I enjoyed your questions as well. 
Thank you. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. Tune in next week as we continue to tackle the truth behind schoolhouse doors. 